Good morning, friends. Cool. Uh, thank you for being here today. If you have your Bible, uh, go to Philippians chapter 4. That's where we will be today. Uh, today we will read together verses 1 through 7, but we will discuss verses 1 through 5. So today we'll read together verses 1 through 7 of chapter 4 in Philippians, and we will unpack verses 1 through 5. But what I find interesting about our passage is that really in this whole section, but in our particular verses 1 through 5, we see choices. We see choices that we must make in the midst of conflict in verses 1 through 3 and in the midst of circumstance in verses 4 and 5. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Therefore, linking it to chapter 3, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge you, Yodia, and I urge you, Sutukain, to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also, to help these women for who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Catch that phrase. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men for the Lord is near. Amen. From a human perspective, what does life really boil down to? Life is not an accumulation of luck. Life is not an accumulation of tragedies or good fortune. Life really boils down to one thing. Choices. Parents in the room, if you've had a teenager or you have a teenager, what do you worry about most? The choices they make. Can I get an amen to that one? I'm sure my dad was terrified of my teenage years. Okay. Uh, parents worry about a child's choice. Their choice of friends. Their choice of boyfriend or girlfriend. Their choice on what to do on a Friday night. Their choice on what to do when their parents aren't around. Life boils down to choices. I came across a study of a famous university they did, and they said that every human being every day makes 35,000 choices. 226 of them are just on food. (laughs) Everything, from a human perspective, culminates from the simple day-to-day choices that we make. The health of our marriage does not just boil down to the choices your spouse makes, but really boils down to the choices you make. The health of your body boils down to the choice between a supersized large fry and a small fry. The health of your children boils down to the fact that you would get up every day and go to work. Your choice to show them love despite exhaustion Your choice to play with them, to engage with them, instead of being enticed by Netflix. Life boils down to daily choices we make. And this, from a human perspective, this is also true of the Christian life. 
the choices that we make, the choice to believe in Jesus or to reject Jesus, the decision to trust God or to not trust God, the choice to pursue God or to pursue other things, the decision to prioritize Him over all or just over some things, the choice to study His Word or to study the world, the decision to see God as sovereign or just see everything as luck. The choice to love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul, or to love something else more. The Christian life is full of choices, and these choices dictate your spiritual life. Choices is the theme of Philippians chapter 4. If you have your Bible, turn there again, and today we will see two choices that we face. Verses 1 through 3, in my opinion, discuss the choices that we must make in the midst of conflict, the conflict with the world, but also the conflict that we see in here. And also we see the choices that we have in the midst of circumstances of life. Notice the first choice that we must make in verse 1. It says, Therefore, my brethren who are beloved, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Now, before we dive in too deep, I want you to notice first the highly personal nature of this book, but also of this verse. What one word is repeated twice in verse 1 alone? Yeah, it's the word beloved. That word beloved there comes from the Greek word agape. It's agape toy, which literally means the ones in whom I deeply love. So what does he tell the church in Philippi? He says to them that he loves them deeply, but what else does he say about them? He says that they are his joy and his crown. Paul calls them his joy. We would say his pride and joy. The church is, in a sense, his trophy, his sense of accomplishment. But what is the one command found in verse 1? The only command found in verse 1 represents the choice that they must make and that we must make every day. What does it say? It says, Therefore, my beloved brother, in whom I long to see my joy and my crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Choice number one that they have and that we have today is to stand firm. But to stand firm against what? Chapter 3. Paul is urging the church in Philippi to stand firm against who? Against the Judaizers, against the dogs that he says in chapter 3 verse 2. Against these people that come into the church and preach a false gospel. Against these people who make Christianity about everything it's not. But let's, let's add another to that. Not only should the church in Philippi, not only should we today stand firm against those who preach a different gospel, but we also, Paul is urging them to stand firm against the coming persecution. Now, where do I get that from? Where is Paul as he writes this letter? He is, I'm I'm hearing little whispers about it. He is in jail, and he is in jail where? In Rome, underneath the Praetorium, which is Nero's personal security force. So I can just imagine Paul is sitting there in prison in Rome with Nero's personal guards. And guess what the guards are probably talking about? They're probably talking about their crazy emperor named Nero, but they're probably also discussing among themselves about the pending persecution that is about to come. What happens in a few years? 
In a few years, Rome is burned, and instead of Nero taking the responsibility for it, he decides instead to blame Christians. So then Nero, in a couple of years, decides to have widespread, massive persecutions on Christians, where he finds a Christian, he dips them while they are living in hot oil, and then lights them on fire in his garden for light. Paul, in my opinion, sees not only that Judaizers are infiltrating the church in Philippi, but also that there is persecution not too far off. As I was chewing on this message this week, I decided, what is my goal? My goal is for each one of us to make a choice. And what's it going to be? Will we stand firm when Judaizers come into our church, when people preach a different gospel come into our church, will we stand firm when the persecution comes, or will we fold like a house of cards? I shared this a couple of months ago, friends, but I believe that persecution is not far off especially for Christians who actually believe the Bible is true, who actually try to live by the principles that we see here. Let me just give you one. If you do not believe that persecution is not too far off, then what do we believe about marriage? That marriage is between a man and a woman. Can I get an amen to that one? Thank you. But for Christians who hold that as truth, do you think that we're not going to face persecution or consequences in the near term? I believe that a wave is coming, and what will we choose? Will we fold, or will we stand firm? Paul urges his church in Philippi to stand firm in conflict with the world, but he also urges them to stand firm in the midst of conflict that they experience inside of the walls. What's going on in verses 2 through 3? Notice it. He says, I urge you, parakaleo euodia. And I urge you, parakaleo. He does it twice. He says, I urge you, euodia. I urge you, sutukain, to what? To live in harmony in the Lord. So what's going on? Verse 3. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women whom have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement, also to the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. What's going on in verse 2? We would say there is drama in the church in Philippi. They're fighting. These two women are fighting in verse 2. Euodia and Sutu came. We don't know what they're fighting about, but we know that because Paul calls them out, he literally calls them out by name. This is actually a very rare circumstance in this in the New Testament under Pauline literature. Paul calls out these two ladies for fighting. It seems to be that there are some irreconcilable differences that they have. But our conflicts irreconcilable. But notice the details of these two ladies that are fighting. Notice verse 3. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who, notice this verse, who have shared in my struggle for the cause of the gospel, 
together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. What do we know about these two ladies in verses 2 through 3? Number one, that they are fighting. We don't know what it's about. Number two, that both of these ladies are Christians. What does this say at the very last? Whose names are written in the book of life. And what else do we know about these ladies? Number three, that they are godly. They are godly women. What does it say? To help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. That Paul has lived, in a sense, in ministry with these women, and both of them have served alongside him in the cause of the gospel. So we know these ladies are fighting, we know that they are Christians, and we know that they are godly and righteous. Yet, they just can't get along. These two ladies are godly, they serve the Lord, they are proclaiming the gospel, yet they just can't stop fighting. Allow me to ask you the question, and I want you to raise your hand. How many of you have ever met two Christians that simply just can't get along? Okay, we should all be unanimous on that one. (laughs) Two hands, right? We all have, yeah, I saw a couple of, three hands in the middle, whoa, uh, uh, but we've all known Christians that simply just can't get along. We've all known Yodias and Sutukanes. I have seen Christians that gossip about one another's incompetence. I have seen Christians fight in the church parking lot. Anybody ever seen that one? I've seen them fight in a church sanctuary. I've seen Christians, literally, they walk into the back part of the sanctuary, they see each other are here, and then they go part the Red Sea. Okay, anybody else have noticed that? We've all seen Christians that simply just can't get along. But I'm just going to say it this way. Friends, do you think God really wants us to live that way? Do you think God really wants us to have conflict between other believers that we have not reconciled? What does the scripture say? Matthew chapter 22 verse 39. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We should not have irreconcilable conflict with anyone. In fact, as a Christian, irreconcilable conflict is an oxymoron. There is No such thing. All conflict is reconcilable. I mean, just think about, (laughs) just think about God in His perspective real quick, okay? He's sitting there from heaven and He's watching most churches in America today and He's seeing people in the church fighting and not getting along and not reconciling their differences. And what is God saying up from heaven? Wait a second. I have forgiven you for idolatry. I have forgiven you for, you know, lust and for murder and for spiritual adultery. I've forgiven you of so much more. Can't you just forgive one another? I am just glad I am not God. Okay. Uh, for all of us, that's a good thing. But I, and I was sitting there this week as I was preparing and as I was thinking about these two ladies, I, was hesitant to take it a step further, but I'm just going to do it. go ahead and do it. Uh, I'm just going to make people irritated and mad at me today, and that's okay. I can take the heat in the hate mail. It's fine. 
But allow me to just get real personal. I've seen irreconcilable conflict, not just with Christians that go to church together. I've seen irreconcilable conflict between families, between friends, and between spouses. I have known a whole bunch of Yadias and Sutukanes that are married to each other. I've known a whole bunch of married people that just simply can't get along. Now, to be honest, at times, I'm not immune to this. Uh, my own marriage at times has been, you could be, it could be characterized by this, that we have irreconcilable conflict in our marriage. You know, sometimes it's like every time you talk to your spouse, it's like a nuclear bomb going off. Anybody else have that one before? Uh, I think you got a couple of amens. I was even in Yosemite Valley at a five-star restaurant, and, it, and I basically erupted in conflict and in frustration, and that was not my finest moment. We all in marriage, all in our families, all in our deepest relationships can be characterized by these two women, that we are just simply irreconcilable. We have so much conflict in the middle of our lives that we can't just forgive, we can't just let go. But they still have a choice. Notice the choice that these two ladies have. Notice verse 2 again. It says this, I urge you, Uadia, and I urge you, Sutukain, to live in harmony in the Lord. If you have a pen, circle that word, live in harmony. Now that phrase in the, in the English does not do the Greek justice. Because literally what Paul says is this, I urge you, Yadi, I urge you, Sutukane, to set your minds on the Lord. It's the same word. It's used, this is the eighth time it is used. The same word used in chapter 2, verse 5. That they are to set their minds to be like Christ. Paul uses this word again, right here. He says to these ladies, to set your mind on the Lord. What does that mean? Instead of noticing, instead of letting your differences drive a wedge in your friendship, set your mind on your commonality. Set your mind on the Lord and also becoming like the Lord. What's the problem? That they, these women, are so tunnel visioned that they fail to see that they are both striving for the same prize. Christ-likeness. As Christians, what daily choices must we make to stand firm in the face of persecution, in the face of the religious? I say that with parentheses. Choice number two is this, to stop focusing on the offense. Rather, set your mind on the Lord. Can I, can I just say something really quick? When you have in your marriage, when you have in your church, when you have in your family, when you have a conflict that just cannot be reconciled, what is the cause of that? Some would say selfishness, some would say pride, but I'm going to take it a little step further. I think it's tunnel vision. The root of irreconcilable conflict is tunnel vision. When I counsel families and married couples that are going through conflict, guess what I always hear? 
they did this and they did that and he did this and he did that and she did this and she won't do this and blah, 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 blah. What is that telling me? It's telling me that they're only focusing on the offense instead of realizing that they're both striving for Christ's likeness. So then forgive each other. Friends, if the prize of this Christian life is Christ's likeness, then we must not hold on to an offense. If the goal of this Christian life is Christ's likeness, then we must forgive even without their repentance because He forgave. If the goal of this Christian life is to be like Christ, then we must not carry a ledger of offense because He does not. Friends, we all have conflict at times that just seems overbearing. But I would encourage you to do this, to not just focus on how they have wronged you, but rather to forgive and to be reconciled because we have a great and mighty and gracious and forgiving Lord. And we should try to live like Him as best we can. But then notice, how does Paul also hope that these women resolve their conflict? Notice again verse 3. Indeed, true companion, notice that phrase right there. I ask you also to help these women who I have shared in my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul hopes these women resolve their conflict, number one, by setting their minds on the Lord on the same thing. But then number two, that these women get help. It's what it says. That if we're in conflict, they're in conflict, just find help. And who does he call upon to help these women? It says the true companion. He hopes to find that one person, his true companion, to come alongside these women that have these conflict and to help them forgive and to work together. If you are having conflict, set your minds on the same thing in the Lord. And number two, get help. But notice Paul does not entreat the whole church to come alongside, he entreats his true companion to remind them of their common purpose and their common goal. As Christians, we must stand firm in the midst of the pending persecution that I'm pretty sure is not too far off. Choice number two, we must stop being tunnel-visioned. Stop focusing on the offense and rather set our minds on the Lord. If you are in conflict, we all have it at times, if you are in conflict, what will you choose? Will you choose to forgive? Will you choose or to be tunnel visioned and to hold a grudge? You know, life, <laughs> life is just too short to live in the pit of despair. It's not a fun thing to live like these women are living. Can I get an amen to that one? It's not fun. It's not, and it's not right. It's not okay. Friends, let's just forgive. And I'm doing this right now, that pointing 18 billion fingers back at myself. So don't feel like I'm judging anyone here. But then notice the third choice in verses 4 through 5. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men, for the Lord is near. What is the third choice? Choice number three. To rejoice in the Lord. And then notice that next word, always, not just sometimes. Rejoice in the Lord 
always. And then notice the emphasis in the last little word. Again, I say rejoice. Paul uses that phrase to really emphasize it, to make it come off the page. That we are to, as Christians, to rejoice always. Choice number three is to be joyful in the Lord. I have said this before, and I will say it again, and if you disagree with me, that's okay, but it's not what's in the Bible and you're wrong. <clears throat> Hate mail. Okay. Um, <laughs> joy is a choice. Let me say that again. Joy is a choice. If I have not drilled that into your head by now, then let me just say it again. Joy is a choice. You don't have to live like Eeyore. You have a choice if you to be joyful in the Lord. Joy does not depend on our circumstances. So many times is that we look at our life, we look at our bank account, we look at our house, we look at our car, we look at our job, we look at our status, and we try to make those circumstances determine our joy. And they will fail you. They'll make you maybe happy for a moment, but they will not provide lifelong, lasting joy. The only person that can really give you lasting joy is the creator of joy itself, which is Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the Savior of the world. If you are looking for joy in any others, you will be disappointed. And as I mentioned in chapter 3, verse 1, where this phrase is also repeated, it says, Rejoice in the Lord. What I said is this, that I believe what Paul means by this phrase is that we rejoice because of the Lord. Because of what He has done in chapter 2, and because of what He has provided in chapter 3. In chapter 2, we rejoice because of the Lord, because that He decided to humble Himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why did He do that? So that He could pay for my sins, and that if I believe in Him, that I would have eternal life. That we rejoice because of the Lord, because of what He has done, and also because of what He has provided. That's what I feel like chapter 4, verse 4 says. Because of chapter 3, because of what the Lord has provided in chapter 3, we are then to be joyful. What did the Lord provide in chapter 3? Verse 8 says more than that. I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing. Notice that. Knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but feces, literally, so that I may gain Christ. One of the things that the Lord has provided through the blood and the cross is that we can know Him. No longer do we sacrifice on an altar. The curtain is ripped. Amen? We can know God. He provides us that we can have a relationship with Him, but it's so much more than that. We can rejoice in the Lord because now we can pursue becoming like Him. We can prioritize Him. And we know because He provides us hope of the future Verse 21 of chapter 3. Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity, into the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. What, is, what does that say? It means one day He will come again and we will join Him in heaven. 
Friends, do not let temporal circumstances Do not let temporal circumstances and pain determine your joy. Rather, set your eyes upon the Savior because, as I just said, one day Jesus will come again, vacating us from the pain of this world. Jesus will replace this broken and dark world with a new heaven and new earth, replacing this with a heaven that is void of tears of pain, a world without sin, a world without anxiety, and a world without conflict. One day, He will return. That is the blessed hope that we look for. One day, He will return, and He will usher in with Himself eternal life, one of peace and one of restoration. And what I find amazing is that the the handle that Paul grips in the midst of his prison sentence. The handle that he grips is that one day Jesus will return and rescue him from the pain in the midst of the change that he experiences. Friends, joy is a choice. What will you choose? When we stand firm and when we stand together, when we move past our conflict, when we rejoice in the Lord, notice the consequence or the outcome. Verse 5 says, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men, for the Lord is near. What I see is verse 5 is a consequence of verses 1 through 4. But as I kind of took a step back this week from this passage, I really asked myself, Really? There's really one main choice in this passage, and as a consequence of that one choice, the rest kind of fall into place. Really, maybe this passage is one choice, that if we choose joy, what happens to our ability to stand firm? We stand stronger. What happens to our conflict if we are joyful in the Lord? We are much more likely to forgive And to move past our conflict, to move past our differences. If we are joyful in the Lord, what gives us, what happens to our ability to help others? It is compounded. What happens to our gentle spirit? It is known before all men. Friends, where is your joy? Are you still trying to find joy in your circumstances? Or will you just Like me, I'm preaching to myself. Will you turn your eyes from this world and will you see your Savior? Friends, life is far too difficult and far too annoying and far too painful if we are looking for our circumstances to make us joyful and to make us happy. Maybe a better question is this, that do we, do you have joy in your life? Or are you just angry and bitter or completely defeated? And friends, I'm just going to say this next little note is kind of a rabbit trail, if you will. But that it is perfectly acceptable to grieve and to be joyful at the same time. After all, what does it say in John 11.35 that our Savior, what we meant to be like Him, that Jesus wept. That it is perfectly acceptable to grieve. 
But our grief must lay on a foundation of hope that is poured out by our Savior. Friends, what's it going to be? Persecution, people who preach a different gospel, legalists, people who are all about rules and regulations, that that is coming. People are trying to infiltrate the church. What are you going to do? Are you going to abide by verse 1? Will we stand firm or will we fold like a cardboard box? When the government bangs on your door because of your stance on Facebook, what will you do? When a preacher comes up here and preaches a foreign gospel, hopefully that will never happen. But what will we do? When we face conflict with another Christian, what's it going to be? Are you only going to focus on your hurt and on the offense and become pigeonholed so much that you are going to be blind to love? Or are you going to see the joy of the Lord, that the Lord, if the Lord forgives you for an ocean of wrongs, then we can forgive another for a kiddie pool of wrongs. When you face difficulty, what's it going to be? One day, I promise you, I promise you this 100%. That if you live long enough, you will experience tragedy. Can I get an amen to that one? It's a fact of life. We live in a broken and sinful world. Amen? Goodness gracious. You know, one day, tragedy, difficulty is going to stab you in the back like a knife. It's coming. Trust me. And I have walked through some difficult valleys. And I know many of you have walked through even more dark and difficult valleys. And when you face that time, when you face those circumstances, when you face that pain, what will we choose? It's okay to grieve. It's okay to not understand. It's okay to go before the Lord and say, Lord, this makes no sense. But pour it on the foundation of our questions must be our hope in the Savior that Jesus died and paid for. What is it going to be? Friends, we have something that the world does not. We have something that we would say is different, is special from the world, and is found only through Christ. You know, think about a non-believer for just a second. They have no source of eternal joy. They have no source of eternal peace. They have no source of eternal comfort. But what do we have? We have joy. We have power. We have the Holy Spirit living inside us. We have hope that Jesus one day will return again. Can I get an amen to that? So we should just... We so many times we so struggle with just looking at the world, but friends, let us turn our eyes to the source of joy itself, to the one that transcends joy. Lord, let us not place our joy in circumstances, but in the transcendent joy that only the Lord brings. But the Lord gives us these tools, but it is up to us to use it, us to believe it, us to trust it. And what I find amazing about our Lord is there's tons of things. 
One of the things I find great comfort is that our Lord, our Savior, wants us to pursue Him all the more. And in Him, you, we will find rest for our souls, grace that is abounding, and we will find a satisfying eternal life. But I'm really talking to Christians for the last 40 minutes or so. To some of us in this room, we are faced with another choice. Really, this choice is the foundation of everything. If you are still skeptical of this Jesus thing, if you do not know what to do about Him, then you really are faced with really only one of two choices. You either believe in Him or you reject Him. That's it. Putting it on hold until you get older is really rejecting Him as your Savior. Friends, listen to me. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then He offers you a gift of eternal life that if you believe in Him, that you will be saved. You can keep on running. You can keep on trying to find joy in this world or satisfaction in this world or hope in this world, but you're going to be looking for eternity. And one day you're going to wake up and realize your really terrible mistake. What is John 3.16 says, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. If you have never believed in Jesus as your Savior, then believe in him and be saved. Bow with me in a word of prayer and I will close. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for my fellow friends and believers in this room. I thank you for the joy that we can have in you and in you alone, a joy that is not circumstantial, but one that is transcendent beyond our circumstances and our trials. Lord, I just pray for my friends that today that we would stand firm. Lord, that we would also, in the midst of the conflict that we experience, that we would not be isolated on the offense that we have. Lord, that we would forgive because we are forgiven. Lord, I pray that we would find the joy that only you can bring. Lord, I just pray for those that are still skeptical of this Jesus in the Scriptures. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes that you would take off the scales of the brokenness in the flesh that they live in, Lord, and I pray that you would come to them and that you would reveal the truth that you are the Savior, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Lord, I just pray that you would come to them and that they would just trust in you as Savior. Lord, I thank you for Calvary. I thank you just for the faithfulness of this church. I thank you to just having you worship together in song and in your word. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.